Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Guten Schnitzel, everybody. Yeah, we were told that Guten Tag is actually good day and Guten Abend is good night. I didn't read any of that. Okay. So Guten Schnitzel. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present. Nor are we journalists, we're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an enamel bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. (coughs) Bagel. I did, yeah. yeah. I needed that bagel, <laughs> Timmy's. I, I and while, and, and, and I'm gonna about to consume some Tim Hortons tea. There you go. This is episode 93, and part one of a two-part series. Surprise! This is a special topic for me. I've been looking forward to telling this story for quite some time. We've never had so much access to the family of a victim of a heinous crime. There are actually two brutal murders in this story, but the first one was the most memorable to me personally. The search for the victim of that crime, Lynn Marie Duggan, was in full swing in North Vancouver when I moved there 26 years ago from Nova Scotia. It was all over the news and I ended up living just blocks away from the murder scene, which happened to be Lynn's own apartment. I recall the multiple searches. Sometimes there'd be hope that Lynn Duggan had been found, but the Duggan family's dreams to bring Lynn home were dashed over and over. Lynn Duggan's fraternal twin sister Cheryl reached out to me months ago. She'd seen us in a recent global TV interview. She wanted us to tell the story of what happened to Lynn and offer access to learn what the family had been through. 
Cheryl provided us with documents and facts about the crime and their aftermath that we'd never have had access to otherwise. So I jumped at the chance. Mm-hmm, absolutely. She agreed to sit down for an interview in her kitchen with me to go over some key points in the story, which Scott and I will discuss as these two episodes progress. You might hear her sweet little Yorkie, Keely, yipping once in a while. I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. It, it just brings some um, reality into... into. I thought about doing it in a studio with her because mm-hmm. I have access to yeah, a remember, studio. I remember you were mentioning that's what you were thinking. But I decided to ask her if she'd be more comfortable in her home, and she suggested that that would be the case. So Yeah, I, I think yeah, there's just something much more personal about being in her space, mm-hmm. hearing her story. I wanted her to be super comfortable. Absolutely, yeah. This is Murder Most Pointless, the story of Lynn Duggan and Patty Ducharme. The twins, Cheryl and Lynn Duggan, spent the week together. They'd both been feeling under the weather. Lynn was feeling out of sorts. Cheryl was recovering from some minor surgery. They wanted to take care of each other. Cheryl spoke to Lynn at about 10 p.m. on June 16, 1993. Little did she know this was the last time she'd hear her twin sister's voice. The next morning, though, driving with another sister, Cheryl had a premonition that something was really wrong. Here's what she told me about that day. We were supposed to go to a friend's house that night to see her brand new home just across the street on Grand Boulevard. Mm. And Lynn didn't want to go because she wasn't feeling well. So I said, okay, that's fine. I'll go and I'll phone you when I get back. So I did call her and she said she just had a bath and that she had just heard from him. And if I would please, um, you know, take Friday off and, and, uh, meet him on Friday, but make sure, you know, I didn't do anything because she really wanted me to meet him. So by him, you're referring to Brock Yes, Graham. yeah. So then the next morning, um, my sister and I, who worked together, uh, I went to pick her up, and then I drove back down Grand Boulevard, and just just on 13th Street, just, you know, down from where Lynn lived, I just started to cry. And Kim's like, well, what is wrong with you? And I said, I don't know. I said, it's Lynn. I just really worry about her. And Kim's like, well... You know, she's okay, she'll be fine. Like, you know, she kind of talked to me over it and we went to work. And that morning when we were on our lunch break, that's when we got the call. Brock Graham, the man that Cheryl had mentioned, had only dated Lynn briefly. They were just getting to know one another. They were not really an item. Hmm. Brock was a divorced father of three, a former paratrooper in the Canadian Armed Forces, and a decorated ex-Vancouver police officer and sniper on their emergency response team. He was also a former transit police officer. He was a black belt karate instructor. So one would think very well disciplined and um, solid individual with these kind of credentials and martial arts background. and That's a fair assumption. Yeah. Unknown to Lynn, Brock had a dark side too. He was a bit of a player. He was not only dating Lynn at the time, and possibly another unnamed woman. Unknown to all the players, Brock was trying to reconcile with his wife, and he also had a steady girlfriend named Martine. He'd fooled Lynn with his superficial charm, but many knew him as an alcoholic. 
He was a regular steroid user, trying to portray a macho image on the outside, knowing he was a powerless little twerp on the inside. No one dared challenge him on this or they'd feel his wrath. He was able to fool people for a time, but Lynn hadn't gotten to know him that well yet. Okay, now. From Bill Sharp's book, Cop, 43 Years in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, quote, On February 2, 1987, VPD ERT was called to assist the Vancouver RCMP drug section execute a high-risk search warrant at a premise in the Kitsilano neighborhood of Vancouver. During entry, Sergeant Larry Young, who was the team leader, was shot and killed by John Sheffield, the suspected drug dealer. Brock Graham, who followed Young into the room, returned fire and killed Sheffield. Wow. This is the incident that Brock often points to as a turning point in his policing career. This, he claimed, led him further down into the bottle. He left the VPD a couple of years after. It's odd that we talk about a perpetrator so early on in our storytelling. But, in the minds of the Duggins, right from the first night, he was the only suspect. RCMP investigators quickly came to see it that way too, thanks to shaky alibis and odd post-defense behavior. On the morning of June 17, 1993, it was Julie, one of Lynn and Cheryl's other sisters, who took the call about Lynn not appearing for her shift at the local London Drugs photo department. Lynn was always diligent about calling in if she was sick, and she lived only a few blocks away from the store. Cheryl told us what happened next. Julie then um, went on her lunch hour to look at her apartment, and the landlord let her in, and she said everything's fine. It's just that uh, her shower curtain and towels were missing out of her, out of her bathroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, when Julie told me that, I either thought I've watched too many bad movies or we're in really big trouble. Like I knew, I knew right away. You know, when you were mentioning how she felt, uh, she had a premonition. Yeah. Uh, As soon as she sees these signs. Well, she's told about the signs by Julie. Cheryl is the is the one who was told about it. But still, having mm-hmm. just hearing those basic oh, shower curtains missing for her, yeah. she's very she has good intuition, yeah, good instincts. According to the eldest sister Kim, in a Vancouver Province news article, she said it didn't take long to know that there was an actual problem. Oh, the Duggins were a close family, and it was unusual for anyone to be out of the loop as far as their whereabouts, especially if something was up. Yeah. And, like I say, they had both been under the weather, so people usually stuck close then. The family comprised of the father, Merv Duggan, Marlene, the family matriarch, Kim, Brad, the twins, Cheryl and Lynn, and the youngest sister, Julie, all lived within walking distance of each other in North Vancouver. And North Van is just that beautiful city that you see across from Vancouver when, yeah. you're, when you're looking Gorgeous. away. Yeah. Gorgeous area. There was a family dinner that night at a local restaurant, and when Lynn didn't show up for dinner, her mother voiced concern, saying she didn't have a good feeling. Cheryl knew she couldn't just sit there. She had to act. Cheryl went herself to Lynn's bachelor apartment, number 705 at 1415 St. George's Avenue. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't sit there knowing what was going on, so I just, I think I made up an excuse that I wasn't feeling well, so I needed to leave early, or... So that's when I went back to her apartment and the landlord let me in and I was looking around and I thought, well, 
everything's fine. The only thing weird is all her curtains were closed and all the fans, she had a studio suite, so she, I think she had two fans and they were blowing on like high, but she never closed her curtains, but I just thought, well, because it had been so hot, she didn't want the sun in the apartment or but her clothes for work were all laid out on her, on her ironing board and I looked in the fridge, her lunch was there. It just didn't make sense. And then her cigarette pack was still on, the, on, the, uh, on her coffee table, but then... Smokers would never go anywhere though. Yeah, smokes, exactly, I mean. right? Yeah. And that's what I thought and I thought that's... But then when I turned around, her purse and her wallet were out on her other table. And I thought, okay, this is, this is really weird, like... You know, what is she doing? And did someone else join you there? Then, so after, so I made a phone call actually to Brock because okay. I went through her phone book and I found his number because she writes down everyone's numbers. And I left a message and I said, Lynn, if you're with Brock, you better call me right away because you are in big trouble putting us all through this worry. And, you know, then I hung up. Then Julie and my sister-in-law, Cindy, and my nephew, Justin, showed up. And uh, so we called him again and, you know, we were all looking around going, you know, that's so weird that her shower curtain and towels are gone, but, you know, everything else looks in, in normal. But another thing I noticed was her glasses. She, they were like the frame, the, the lens down when she would always have it lens up. Mm -hmm. That would scratch them. Maybe. Yeah. And I thought, okay, that's weird too. But it wasn't until my nephew was jumping on Lynn's bed that Cindy went to get him down and she said, oh, wait a moment. She goes, you guys, where's Lynn's, where's all her new bedding? because we had just been to Bella's Fair a couple of weekends before that, and she bought all this beautiful peach bedding and pillows, and you couldn't miss that bedding. It was so bright. And um, so we all went in to look, and, and that's when we put on her, we put on her the studio bedroom light because it was getting kind of dark from the shade and with all the curtains being closed, and that's when we saw all the markings on the wall where he had wiped it down. It was all streaked. And then we saw some blood spot, or she had a, an exercise bike at the end of her bed, and she had a nightgown and whatnot hanging there, and it had blood spatter on it. So, of course, we all just, we all went crazy and crying, and Justin said to Cindy, Mommy, has a bad man been here? And she, so she had to take him, him out while Julie and I were making the call, and I remember phoning 911, but I was so hysterical that Julie had to take over the call. And... Um, so we just we were just like crazy and I you know I don't remember how long it took but it seemed forever for the police to come. I can't imagine the moment she sees the blood. Yeah. Because up until then it's you think concern and yeah. fear but you can still have hope. The second you see that blood, you know. She just her heart must have just sank and just that that recognition of yeah, yeah this is not going to end well. Oh, my heart. The building at 1415 St. George's Avenue is a clean-looking multi-unit high-rise situated west of the busy Lionsgate Hospital's emergency entrance just across St. George's Avenue, oh, okay. which is the direction that Lynn's sweet faced. So she yeah. looked right down into the emergency. Yeah, okay. On the other side of the building is just north of the North Vancouver RCMP detachment, right across 14th Street and a single block east of busy Lonsdale Avenue. That's right. The police department is literally across the street from this apartment building. Sandwich between a hospital and, and a RCMP police detachment. Station. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I know I know the area fairly well. I, yeah. can, I can visualize that. After what seemed an eternity, the police finally arrived. So I went in the elevator because for some reason we couldn't let them in. 
there was something wrong with the intercom or we weren't doing it right, I don't know. And then when I got to the lobby, they were leaving. So I was yelling at them, like, stop, like, come back, come back. So they came back and we went up the elevator and I think it's when we walked in, the phone rang and Julie answered and she goes, it's him, it's him, meaning Brock. Brock. So the police officer spoke to him and, and uh, I think he asked her, you know, do you know Lynn Duggan? How do you know her? And do you, have you seen her? And he said, she's just a friend and I haven't seen her in forever. And no, I don't know where she is. And, you know, it was a very short call. And then that's when they wanted, there was two of them and one of them wanted to go look in the area where her bed was because it was an L-shaped studio. And so I sat on the couch and Julie stood stood up beside me, but I couldn't see into the bedroom because the wall and where Julie stood, she could see everything. And all of a sudden, Julie did like this blood curdling scream and put her hands up to her mouth and was, you know, shaking and crying. And right then, I think I went into shock. I just was like, okay, this is really bad. Something has happened. And all of a sudden the officers are like, okay, get your purses, don't touch anything. You need to get out of here right away, but don't touch anything. So what had the officers and Julie found? He had lifted up her mattress and Brock had turned it over and there was a huge blood stain. Like, um, I think they knew by the amount of blood on that stain that, that she was probably gone. But, um, so we had to walk over, like you said, just across the street to the police station. So right there is that PTSD moment. Holy that moment shit. that you're never going to forget in your entire life. Hearing her describe this and walking us through it, it paints such a visual. Like, I feel like I'm I'm there. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, as, as I'm hearing it, I'm closing my eyes and I'm, like, imagining being there and hearing that scream. Oh, my God. So the rest of that evening was quite a blur for everybody, I'm sure. Yeah. And Cheryl told me that most of it was spent talking to the RCMP, of course. The whole family was brought in for questioning, and let's hear some more from her. By this time, we had to phone my mom and tell her to let Dad know that something is really, really wrong and, you know, Lynn could be gone. I have that written in my journal. I didn't remember that part of saying that to them, but... And um, we all had to sit in a room because at that time the police station was really, really small. Mm-hmm. And we were all we were all made to stay in one room, my mom and dad and Kim and uh, Julie and myself and Cindy. And Kim's uh, your older Kim's sister. Kim's my older sister, yeah. yes. And Brad, I think Brad, yeah, Brad showed up too. I, uh, yeah. But I just, I, I just remember Cindy, Julie, and I because um, a detective would come in and he'd say, okay, and he'd call out you know, Cindy or Julie, and I'd go, oh, I'll, I'll go. And they're like, no, you know, we want Cindy. And then it was, an, uh, he came in, another different detective, and he took Julie, and then finally it was my turn. But before that, while everyone was being taken out, um, they called a victim's assistance person to come in. And um, she she was just asking my mom, like, well, tell me a little bit, a bit about Lynn and whatnot. But my mom was just not wanting to talk about anything. But I may have jumped the gun there because before the detectives took us, they had gone over to Lynn's apartment and I guess with how they can check for the blood I can't remember the name of it luminol yes luminol um they saw from her bedroom all the way to the bathroom I believe she was dragged and uh, and then they told us that by the amount of blood that they found that she was gone yeah so I just remember my mom oh, I remember that scream and that's when the detectives all came in and took Julie and their way to different rooms I guess and uh, I, I think the victim assistant woman still tried to talk to my mom. They, oh, by this time they had put us in a little room. It looked like a caretaker's room. And uh, 
you know, they, they were just trying to calm us all down. And that's when we, Julie, I think my mom and dad, they, they left or this woman talked to them a bit longer. But Julie, Cindy and I were into a room and I had a detective called um, Brendan Fitzpatrick. Mm-hmm. And he was the nicest, nicest man. But this all happened maybe around 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock. Yeah. Um, before the detectives come and took us to her room and... He asked me so many questions. I was there till six o'clock in the morning. Wow. Mm-hmm. My heart, man, just hearing, yeah, hearing somebody describe this event so far, yeah, from the first person. It's not easy. It wasn't easy being there and, and hearing her say it directly to me. And, and you can just you can hear the emotion. I, yeah. She certainly sounds like she teared up there, but I mean, mm-hmm. even outside of that, yeah. Yeah, for for a trauma this far down the road to still years, to yeah. still be this vivid in your head mm-hmm. gives you a, a, an understanding of how fucking devastating it is. Cops began questioning other people in Lynn's life, hoping to find some kind of thread that would lead to answers about what had happened to Lynn Duggan and where she was. One person they looked at early on was Martine, Brock's steady girlfriend. Brock had her snowed pretty good too. Okay. Here's Cheryl talking about some early interactions with Martine. Martine was the girlfriend that he was seeing at the time along with Lynn and his wife. She was the one that he he was at her house when we kept phoning him saying, Lynn, are you with him? You better call us. You better call us. And then uh, she said that this Martine, she said that when um, Brock got the call from the police that he went absolutely ghost white and uh, she, after he hung up, she said, what was that all about? And he said, oh, we're just asking about some girl I knew, but she's a druggie and I haven't seen her in a long time. And like just total bullshit again from him. After I got home the morning from the police station, and I guess her being with, with Brock, hearing all these phone calls and, and seeing him say, you know, that he was being asked about this girl. She phoned me the next morning at my parents' house. Wow. Yeah, I picked up the phone and she goes, who's this? And I'm like, well, Cheryl. And she goes, are you related to Lynn? And I'm like, yeah, she's my sister. And she said, well, I want to know how long he's been effing around with my boyfriend. Oh, wow. And I said to her, I said, do you know what has happened? And she's like, no, but I, you know, I, I want to know more about that. And I'm like, okay, well, Lynn's missing. And um, we just discovered this all last night and he's the number one suspect. Wow. And so how did she react? She was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that could have been me. You know, I I was opening up a business with him and I have kids and he's lived here. And so um, I said to her, okay, well, listen, why don't we meet um, and I can tell you more about it. So I got her plate number and the color of her car. And I said, okay, I'll meet you at the bottom of Lynn's building was a coffee shop. I said, "I'll, I'll meet you there and we can talk. So then I phoned Sergeant Bennett right after that. And I said, you know, here I was thinking, I was a detective. I said, oh, I'm meeting the girl that was with Brock last night and, and we're going to talk some more. And, and Sergeant Bennett just said, no, you're not going anywhere. You know, give us the car description and whatnot. And uh, so they met with her. Mm. So she phoned later on that afternoon and Brad picked up. Oh. And I guess when she said who she was, Brad went nuts on the phone to her. Oh. And she just said, look, if you want my help, you know, don't talk to me like that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So I got on the phone with her and that's when she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was dating him and we were going to open up a business together. And So you know, Lynn probably knew none of this. No, yeah. 
No, I thought he was a family man that, you know, he, he was divorced or separated and going to be divorced. And the nicest guy loved his kids, spent all the time with his kids, which he never did. And she said that he also asked if he could wash her, his car at her house. Um, the, 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 the morning, morning after. after. Yeah. He went home to Lori, apparently, the, the morning after yeah. and sat on the couch. So Lori she let was him his in. Wife. Lori was the wife. Um, but then he went to Martine's and asked if he could wash his car. And I believe he got rid of his car, too, after that. Well, he claimed that he let the police go through his car. Yeah, I, I had heard that, too. And it was, but, I mean, he had time to clean it. He knew what to do, sure. right? Yeah. And also, if he carried Lynn in that car, I heard she went out in a garbage bag. Yeah. Like, yeah. So he, he knew what he was doing. He almost had the perfect murder. Yeah. Almost. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so Brock had been telling people that he'd been interrogated for six hours by the RCMP and he was being, quote, cooperative. Neighbors on the seventh floor of Lynn's apartment building had not seen or heard anything suspicious. Hmm. There were no signs of forced entry into Lynn's home, indicating that she'd known her attacker. Somehow Lynn's murderer had been able to get her body out of the apartment block without being spotted. There was some initial confusion about a large, very unique sports bag missing from Lynn's home. Oh, okay. Hmm. We kind of put two and two together that, you know, the shower curtain and all her towels and bedding, like he would have used this big green, and it was a Kellogg's bag. And they kept telling us, yep, yep, no, we've seen the bag. No, it's there, it's there. And we thought, oh, okay, like, how did he get her out? Like, what, where, how did he get all that stuff out of the building, like out of her door? And I think he took her down the stairwell. Um, but how did he carry all this stuff? If, like, what did he put it in or put her in? And um, so it wasn't until we finally had released to get the apartment back where we could go in and start packing up for her, the first thing we found was the green Kellogg's bag was gone. And they had just, she had a little green duffel bag. And they had assumed that that's what we were talking about. So, so the Kellogg's bag was gone. And so we had to do new posters and... Because the Kellogg's bag was a very unique thing. Yes. It was, there were only mm -hmm. like 60 of them in the province. Right. My brother worked for Kellogg's and um, he gave us all, each one of those bags and, you know, some towels and some Kellogg's cups. So we had saved them all. So very unique. Not very many people had them. Mm, okay. But it was big enough that you could put a body in or, or all her bedding or uh, whatever. Oof. I don't, I don't want to comment. I just want to keep listening to the audio. This is like insane. This poor girl. The search was on for Lynn Duggan. She stood five foot two inches tall and weighed 132 pounds. Missing posters started going up right away. The local and national news quickly picked up on the story of the pretty missing 34-year-old. Many of these stories highlighted the gruesome scene and the amount of blood in Lynn's apartment. The idea that Lynn had been murdered was presented to the public very early on. Uh, news reports mentioned the specific items that had been taken from the scene uh, from a June 22, 1993 province newspaper article. Quote, missing from her apartment were a mint green and peach comforter, bed linen towels, beige curtains, and a clear vinyl shower curtain with colored fish printed on it. Some pretty distinctive yeah. uh, items. Police and volunteers searched the area around North Vancouver high and low, in the woods, in the water, on foot with dogs. Boats cruised the waterways and helicopters were called in to help. There was no sign of Lynn anywhere. Like a, a good thing for people to note is Vancouver is a 
it's a big city. It's a it's a very large, dense area. But once you get out to places like North Van, mm-hmm. you're like it's you're five minutes away from absolute wilderness. Yeah, you know, and, yep. and, and ocean and everything. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, once you get to the outskirts of of the city, like it's 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 wilderness. Without any luck in the searches, and as the evidence led investigators to believe that Lynn had not survived the attack. On July 2nd, 1993, Lynn's family and close friends held a celebration of life for Lynn Marie Duggan. Here's some audio of Cheryl talking about that. You know, the police had told us that she was gone. Um, my dad was, was really wanting to have something for her because it was so awful not knowing where she was. And, and she, she needed to have that dignity of, of having a remembrance of a celebration of life. I remember getting up that morning and everybody was so upset in the house. We had some relatives out and um, I remember going outside. I took a coffee and I sat outside in the backyard of my parents' place and I, I wrote the, the, what I was going to say at, at, um, at the church. And uh, I think I had to take a Xanax too before I went because, sure. but I was still in shock. Yeah. I was still like I was able to um, get up and speak. and. And a lot of people that I spoke to afterwards saying, you know, you weren't you, like you were just too, like I was saying, oh, thank you for coming. And you know, like just. So it hadn't really hit you yet. No, no, I was still in shock. When did it hit you? It hit me in September uh, when I went back to work. It was either September or October. Uh, The first couple of days were, it was my boss that really coached me into going back. And he said, Cheryl, you know, if it doesn't work out, that's fine, you go back home. He said, but because the police didn't need me anymore. We'd finished um, trying to identify stuff, tell the story, you know, how much we knew about Brock and Lynn. And and it came to a point where they didn't know or they didn't need me anymore. So my boss actually talked me into going back to work. The first couple of days were fine. You know, everybody was coming up to me and kind of upsetting and, you know, but, you know, I was fine. But it was one day about maybe two weeks or three weeks after I had got back to work that I I thought I could feel that I was starting to get upset. So I, I walked into the washroom. But when I looked in the mirror, I saw a reflection of Lynn. And that just hit me. I was like, oh, my God, she's gone. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I had to go back to my department. And they were like, oh, we're going to take you. One of the, Robin had to drive me home. And um, Kim was so upset with what happened. She phoned Sergeant Bennett. And I guess he had said to her, he had talked to one of my family members, my uncle or Kim, I can't remember, but he said he was glad to hear this, that I was probably starting to come out of the shock. And it was now finally time to start grieving. Yeah. Because I just, yeah. Did Brock come to the celebration of life? No, no. They had police surveillance there. Um, No, there was... Yeah, not that I know of, but, but there was so many police officers there and they had undercover in the parking lot. There was so many people there, but um, you know, from what I was, from what I, I can remember, he, he was a coward. He, he knew better not to show up there. So surprise, surprise, he didn't show up to the funeral. It can be a difficult position because if they do show up, then people will be upset like this cold, callous son of a bitch did this and they show. And then if they don't show up, it's a clear sign of guilt. So it's like, yeah, yeah it's a tough thing, but he, he, I think clearly him not showing up yeah, is a, a strong indication of hiding something. And we'll take a break right here.
And we're back. As time passed with no word on the location of Lynn's remains, nor any word of an arrest, life had to carry on. That it was very different for the Duggan family without Lynn. The next big celebration that summer was to be the twins' birthday. This was the first one Cheryl had to celebrate alone. Oh, God. She was gone June 16th, and our birthday was August 25th, and there was such a build-up to it because everybody, nobody wanted to celebrate it, but they did, and we wanted to remember Lynn, but we didn't want to because it was going to hurt so much, and I was dreading the day. I just, because the last birthday, the year before, we were both single, and we were in my apartment with my niece, Allison, and... We just got talking and, you know, she had brought a little goodies over as a, you know, a mock birthday cake. And um, we just said, you know what, that's okay because, you know, we, we, may, we might not be doing anything tonight for our birthday, but, you know, at least we know we'll, we'll always have each other. Mm. And I never forgot that. And then the next birthday. Yeah. So, but my mom tried to make it as normal, um, you know, chicken wings and, and you know, um, just all the normal stuff and she made it carrot cake and some of my good friends came over um some other friends of Lynn's and her best friend came over and you know we got through the night but at one point my brother got very upset and the leftover birthday cake <laughs> ended up being thrown all over my other sister's car when he was leaving because he was so angry yeah but I wrote to her in my journal that night and just said you know this is one of the hardest nights that I'd had and it'll never be the same yeah Birthdays will never be the same. Right. Yeah. It's not something I ever really think about when it comes to uh, murder cases is when it comes to twins, mm. the surviving twin. That's right. Yeah. Oh. We talked about a surviving twin in the Taylor Van Deest case. We didn't have access yeah. to her. But, yeah. But, but yeah. yeah. Oh, the, what's supposed to be a wonderful day. So a $25,000 reward was offered for any information leading to the arrest of Lynn's killer. Someone had to have information about Brock's whereabouts and movements on the 16th and the 17th that would paint a better picture, and maybe even lead to his arrest. But nobody came forward. Here's a clip of Cheryl giving some insight into the relationship between Brock Graham and Lynn. She only dated him three times, and so many people think that he was her boyfriend. He wasn't. She was dating him three times. Yep. Uh, we walked the seawall one day, and, and she talked about him, and she said, um, no, he's a really nice guy. You know, it's just really weird because he drinks a lot, but the next day he would feel fine. And I was like, Lynn, that's kind of a red flag for, you know, alcoholic. Oh, no, 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 he's, he's such a sports fanatic, and he teaches scuba diving, and he's such a family man, and he loves his kids, and... And I was like, okay, well, you know, just be careful because, you know, he almost sounds too good to be true. And she just giggled, you know, the usual, yeah. laughed it off. And But uh, I knew, I, I knew right away that it was him. My mom called him the Molly Maid Cleaner because of the way he cleaned her apartment. Only a cop would know what to do. And Leaving the fans on. Leaving the fans on. And, yep, yep, the, taking all the evidence out. Um, the windows were open, but the curtains were closed. Curtains were all closed, and yeah. she never she never closed the curtains. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, you know, remaking the bed, like, who thinks of that? Who would go through her stuff to find, you know, just to make everything look... So the bed was remade, it wasn't Oh, just... it was remade. Oh. No, 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 it was remade with all her old bedding. Interesting. Yeah, and that's why Justin was jumping See, on that's it. See, that's a new piece of information. Oh, yeah, no, 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 he... Uh, oh, yeah, he cleaned up there. He knew exactly what he was doing. In an odd move, in late July 1993... Police publicly named Brock Graham as the number one suspect in Lynn Duggan's murder oh. and disappearance. Okay. 
Um, it was impossible to contain with a decorated police officer possibly being involved. Mm-hmm. So everybody was chatting about it anyway. So, so they thought, let's just get it out there. Let's get it out okay. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That and the fact that he looked like the only one who was good for it. And here's some more information from Cheryl. Word got out fast. It's yeah. such a small community. And, yeah. and then um, he was known in the VPD. He told Lynn that he worked for the BC Transit also, but he decided to quit that um, because, it, first of all, he was a VPD, but he decided to quit that because he wanted to spend time with his kids. And, yeah. you know, and then he, she said that he um, told her also, I have this in my journal, that he was an ICBC investigator. Mm-hmm and a real family man and whatnot. And then from what we heard after getting his name out, he was none of those things. And, and from him being let go from the police department and from um, the incident he had as being the emergency response team um, incident, k- killing a drug dealer or something, mm-hmm. everybody knew about him and that he was kind of off the rails and it yeah. had to be him. So there you have it. I'm speechless. In August, Lynn Duggan's bachelor suite was released to the family. Police had gotten all the evidence they were going to get from it, so the Duggan family was allowed back in to clean up. Cheryl and the rest of the family started cleaning it out, but something strange started happening. Someone would phone and hang up, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd report it to the police, and and it's in my journal, too, that uh, he was calling. I guess he wanted to know the time frame of, you know, if her phone was gone or if the apartment shut down now or... But they they did, I believe, track it to the pub that he hung out in in Surrey, from okay. the phone um, from a phone booth or something. So he was he was Whoa. yeah he was he was calling. You know I, I said I thought you know are you trying to scare me or are you just looking after your own needs because I hated him and he didn't scare me I just I was so he he would never say anything they were just hang up calls hang up yeah but the police did as you say trace yes, it to I, the yeah, pub that he hung, yeah. hung out in yeah. Like, what the hell's going through his head? Well, it, it's that whole idea, you're, you're guilty of, of something, and you can't stay away from it. But You're obsessed with it. Am I going to get caught? Am I not going to get caught? Even though he's doing all these things, there's no quote-unquote evidence that points directly to him as the perpetrator of this crime. There is nothing. I, yeah, I get that. Other but than like, people's speculation you know, and the fact that... Um, he had been dating her, and that's it. And then, you know, and I get how the uh, often murderers will uh, inject themselves into it to keep. T- but it's just like, oh, like why call and hang up? What was he tr- like? What benefit to him was there out of that? Again, and she asked that same question. Yeah, like is he trying to intimidate, or is he just trying to see if the phone number is still valid? But like, what would? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Cheryl also shared another painful memory involving her dad in Lynn's apartment with the rest of the family. Mm. Here's some audio of her talking about that. When we were closing down the apartment, like we were saying, there was one night my dad, he had come in and uh, with us, with Brad and Kim and I and Julie, I believe, and he had a crucifix of his grandfather's and inside of it there was holy water. So Lynn had a hope ch- a wicker hope chest beside her bed and um, he set up like a, a mock altar. And we all got into that apartment, you know, it was really upsetting and... And uh, Dad just started sobbing, and he said, you know, you know, we're going to get this prick, and, and, you know, how much he loved her and missed her. And with that, you know, 
Brad got very upset and was out on the balcony and we all were and I you know sure. I just uh, but at different times different things like just it was awful it was awful it's hard for a, a guy to see his dad mm-hmm. yes. upset Cheryl messaged me in the days after our interview with one more anecdote from this time this is indicative of some of the issues in the investigation one day Cheryl got a call to go to the police station RCMP had found some clothing and women's undergarments during their searches for Lynn around North Vancouver, especially in the wooded areas. Cheryl said it was pretty traumatic looking at all this dirty stuff. None of it was Lynn's. Before Cheryl left, the police had one more question for her. They'd collected a photo from Lynn's refrigerator and wanted Cheryl to ID the person in the photo. It was a 4 by 6 picture of either Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. Cheryl couldn't remember which actor it was, for sure, 26 years later. The celebrity had been filming in Vancouver and down by the railway in North Van. A London Drugs customer had brought in the film for developing, and Lynn snuck a copy as a keepsake for herself. Cheryl recalled this as one of the lighter moments in the whole investigation, laughing at the investigators, but also said this is when she realized the investigation was in trouble. Police couldn't even recognize this famous person in a photo. Brock was living his life, going about his business. And his business at that time was teaching karate to local kids at a local rec center. Makes me uncomfortable. Well, it didn't last long. Good. And here's why. I remember being at work at Safeway and phoned the rec center that he worked at. And I just said to them, I said, oh, I'm, I'm trying to get my son into karate. Um, is there anybody that you could recommend? And like whoever answered the phone, she's like, oh, we have this great guy. His name's Brock Graham, and, you know, he's so good with the kids and blah, 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 blah. And I guess she just said too much about him being so great that I, I lost it with her. And I said, do you know that he's the number one suspect in a murder? And you're, you know, having kids being taught by this guy and blah, blah, blah. And she ended up hanging up on me. But, um, yeah, we kind of got in trouble for that. But we knew it was true, so uh, there was one evening some good friends of ours, Jeannie and Bruce, well, he was at the Justice Institute teaching. Mm -hmm. Jeannie and Bruce postered the underground parking. um, With with Lynn's posters. Lynn's uh, missing posters. Yeah, and then, so I guess when he finished teaching and he came out and saw those, that's the night that he went in his car driving around with um, a vest on and some um, sword. I was told a sword, but he had some kind of weapons in the back seat and was driving around Surrey, around his neighborhood and whatnot. Brock was arrested on February 16, 1994, in Surrey at 152 and 80th, after he was seen driving with his lights off. RCMP found a 22 handgun, a bulletproof vest, and martial arts weapons in the car. He was charged with possession of a restricted weapon. Mm-mm. He later claimed in a province newspaper article from March 13, 1994, that he was being harassed by North Vancouver RCMP and that Surrey RCMP had been neglectful as he claimed he and his family were receiving death threats. He also claimed he'd been following two men who had been following him and stalking him and sitting outside his house. Just like Rashkolnikov in Crime and Punishment, who'd murdered his landlady and seemed to have gotten away with it until his conscience came calling. Brock's guilt was leaking out. Yeah, clearly. He was losing it. Well, we were told, too, that he had become very um, confined to his home, very paranoid. And if anybody drove by there, he was always, like, out the window looking. So he, he was paranoid with all that, like the postering. And we also did, he went to Hawaii and uh, 
near the end of August, I think it was. It was in the summer, anyways. He went to get his thoughts together to think sure. things through because you know he had been harassed and you know um, pointed Just as a suspect in a murder. Away. That, yeah, he yeah. needed to clear his thoughts and whatever. And um, so we went to the airport to poster again. Um, for when he come back. He would see Lynn's face and missing yeah. all over the airport when yeah. he walked out of customs kind yeah. of thing. Because in my journal I read, for a reminder, um, we went to the airport and one of the fellows that worked in customs, a security guy or something, he thought I was Lynn. And, and we had gone up to him to ask, this is what we want to do. And he said, well, are you Lynn Duggan? And I said, no, I'm her sister, her twin. And he said, okay, now I know that it really happened because I saw you, I thought you were her, and oh, wow. I was confused. And we said what we wanted to do, and, and he, they let us do it all around the, the, like when he got off and would go to the luggage to get his, you know, the round. So you folks really want it in his head. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I kind of dig that. Oh, you know, in, in a way, it's like, you know what, he's getting away with it, but he's not getting away with she, it. She's my hero. Right. This is brilliant. Oh, yeah. poor, poor Brock needed to go clear his head in Hawaii. I yeah. just, I love this psychological game that she's playing. It makes sense to do, but oh. like she said, the RCMP gave them a hard time about doing it. Well, it wouldn't stop me either. Like, good on them. And there were some more posters. Oh, great. We went to Surrey. A friend of ours, Bernie, had, um, he had mentioned that uh, he believed Brock hung out at the Fleetwood Arms. Mm hmm so we went there and we postered all around that area and around his, um, where he would hang out and stuff. And the next day or that afternoon, we got a call from um, the police saying, had we been out in the Surrey area? We said yes. And had you been postering in, in, in pubs and whatnot? And we went, yep. She said, okay, well, I'm just going to tell you now, you hit bang on. But we've had phone calls of complaints of harassment. I think it was from his wife or him. And that, you know, we, we shouldn't go back out to that area. I was postering a missing poster Well, harassment. I guess he felt, because that was his hangout. The Fleetwood Arms was his hangout. And how dare we put, you know, Lynn's face everywhere where he'd have to, you know, see her face. And, right. Yeah. Poor baby. You know where Lynn's hangout was? Her house. Her yeah, home. That's right. Before you killed her, you son of a bitch. Who the hell are you to yeah. get pissy about, oh, yeah. this is my safe space? Oh. Well, innocent until proven guilty, Scott. Correct. Not in my head, though. Yeah. Well, he's playing that game, right? Mm-hmm. After his arrest on the gun charge, Brock later pled guilty, most likely to avoid a harsh sentence. He wrote a letter to the court painting himself as the victim. Oh, my God. Eight months ago, he said, a woman who I dated three times went missing. He continued, there has been much speculation that I have had some involvement in her disappearance, end quote. He also said he was not a violent man and followed the Bushido warrior's way, writing, to die when it is right to die, to strike when it is time to strike, are part of the code. Cheryl felt strongly about this letter and had some reaction to it, that she shared with me. Oh, I look forward to hearing it. Oh, I called that bullshit. Yeah. And I have in my journal, too, I said it wasn't the Bushido belief, it was the Brock belief, and it was a belief, oh, you know, when it's time to strike a woman, I'm going to strike her. Yeah. And that's my belief. Well, uh, you know, and teaching kids and teaching them that belief, ugh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, mm. He was sentenced to two years of probation for the gun charge, even though he maintained he was the one being harassed. Yeah, poor Brock. The Duggans continued organizing search after search based on the tips that had come in, and often more than 400 people would show up to help. Mm. 
They'd found no traces of Lynn outside her apartment until over a year after her death, there was a partial resolution. Oh. Lynn and I lived a block away. Same with Julie. She lived a block away. So Julie moved in with Brad. I moved in with my mom and dad. So I was getting all the calls from the police at my mom and dad's. And there was this one call at 6 o'clock in the morning. And it was um, Sharon McWilliams, I believe. And she said, you know, you need to get your family all together and meet us like in an hour. And I was like, oh, my God, you got him, you got him. She goes, I can't talk on the phone, mm. but please call your family. And so I, had, I got my mom and dad up, and we got Kim, Julie, and Brad back to the house. And, and then Sharon McWilliams and um, Bennett, Sergeant Bennett, showed up and sat down. And from what I remember, they said, um, I think it was Sergeant Bennett, just said, I, we don't know how, how else to tell you this, but... Lynn's head has been found. And uh, it just, everybody just lost it. Yeah, it was, um, that was one of our worst moments too. Wow. Horrific. I can't even, I can't even imagine that moment when you find out that. Yeah. On June 30th, 1994, two young men had tried to sell a skull with a jawbone to the UTV television station. Wait a minute. Yes. They'd just found the skull in the Seymour Demonstration Forest on the North Shore, near where they'd been tending some pot plants and had picked it up with a towel. The CKVU TV station declined their macabre offering between 4 and 5 p.m., telling the young men not only was it illegal for them to purchase human remains, that they should turn the skull over to police. Fearing a bust for the pot, the two bolted. The men dropped the skull on a grassy boulevard in Vancouver at 58th and Angus Drive. They knew someone would find it there. At around 8.20 p.m. that same day, a couple walking their dog found the skull. The jawbone was a meter away in the gutter, as though thrown from a car. I don't know how to feel about these guys. Yeah. Before police removed the skull, two preteen skateboarders who happened to pass by also saw the grisly sight. It had taken a week to ID the skull and jawbone through dental records as having belonged to Lynn Duggan. This appeared to be a massive break in the case, and many speculated that it would lead to the quick discovery of the rest of Lynn's remains mm -hmm. and possibly a resolution to the case. Yeah, I would think. Merv Duggan told a province news reporter, We're looking at 30 to 60 days before we see this guy behind bars. Oh. Lynn's skull told police a part of the story, too. It confirmed the speculations that Lynn's murder had been a brutal one. According to a letter written by Marlene and Merv Duggan, Lynn's parents, there was a large hole above her ear, a large hole in the back of her head, the frontal bones were fractured, and some of her teeth were knocked out. Holy shit. Lynn's skull also indicated that it had not been buried deeply, if far at all. Some of it had showed dirt and leaves and other detritus, and part of it was bleached as though it laid in the sun. Mm. The family put out a plea for the young men who'd found Lynn's skull to come forward. These two would be able to show authorities where they'd found the partial remains and possibly lead to the rest. Mm -hmm. And here's uh, Cheryl talking about the plea to the boys. My dad and I did an article in the province. Um, we were warned by the police don't put your phone number out there because you're going to get all kinds of crazies. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. But um, I think it did work, and they finally, they did come through, but the parents wouldn't let us meet them. Sure, because yeah. they were minors. Yeah, so yeah. no, we never met them. So these two young men, who proved to be boys, led investigators to where they'd found the skull. Oh, good. A massive search was undertaken at the time and did turn up some more evidence, but not as much as the Duggan family had hoped. Mm. Here's Cheryl talking about search results. 
Oh, I think it was quite a quite a quite a large area. I just I, I remember that seeing the big uh, van or you know their how they set up, um, and it was all up past the demonstration forest. But I never went to the spot because um, I was pregnant at the time, mm. so I couldn't go down to the area that she was found. But because um, it was in in a ravine, a bit of a ravine. Yeah. 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 Down a hill or something, and and they don't know whether a, a you know, if an animal had taken her down there or... Yeah. But when they looked, they just found a couple of teeth, I believed, okay. from the search. Well, the Duggan family did at least have a piece of Lynn now. A, a bit of uh, progression in regards to being able to move forward, but... Yeah, we won't use the word closure because everybody <sighs> knows that that's not a real thing. No, all you can do is try to... Try to yeah try to move forward but uh yeah it took a while before lynn's skull was released to them and here's the story of how that happened we never did get to see it um we were just told about you know the the fractures and the holes in her cheek and her face her teeth missing and the big ga- gaping hole in the back of her skull so at some point though your family was given her skull well that was all Due to my mother, she kept phoning, uh, I believe it was Sergeant Babcock at the time, and mm-hmm. wanting to get her back. And they said, no, we need her for, um, we need it for evidence and whatnot. But then finally, um, we reached out to the coroner, right, Larry Campbell. And he was very, very kind. And he found a way, he said that they could plaster, you know, make a mold of her. And definitely that uh, he would release her. So um, they did, they... She was sent up to the Bowl Chapel here in North Vancouver. Yes. 1997. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I went up there. I had to sign some release forms. And all I saw was uh, a box with a cover over it. And um, so he then took me in to look for coffins. And I just said to him, I said, it's just her skull. Like, we don't need a coffin. Like, I got really upset. So then he took me over to baby urns. And I was just like, you know what? No, none of this is Lynn. And I need to get out of here. So my other two sisters decided that they wanted to go, but they wanted to go see her. Mm. So they went up there, and um, now she had a, a she was in a box with a red velvet draping over her, and they had requested to actually look at her skull. Yeah. But um, it was advised not to. Right. Because of what they would what they would see that it would have been too upsetting. So they didn't do it. No. Yeah. No. Even though they were there and it was right there in front of them, yeah. they just decided that it's probably better if we don't see that. Yes. All and right. then she was released and my other sister and I, we went up and and picked her up and it was a very long and slow drive home because we didn't want to disrupt her ashes. and, and uh, So she'd been cremated? She was cremated, yes. Okay. And now she's on the, uh, on my fireplace. Wow. Yeah. And it was so, it was like we had part of her back. I mean, it was, it was almost like we won the lottery getting her skull. And my mom was so happy too, knowing that she, you know, wouldn't be sitting getting dusty because nothing was happening with the case. It's a real morbid thing to, to have to consider, but at least you had a piece of your sister. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean. That was, yeah. Because thinking of her out in that, out in that bush and, and, you know, cold nights and all the... Yeah. alone just would kill me yeah. and all of us. So now having a part of her back was like, you know, we had her back. So, yeah, and we're very thankful to the coroner for allowing us to have her. 
I don't even know what to say. Like that, yeah. How sad. It's very sad. Oh. The family had also been doing their own searches uh, the whole time, and they were discoveries, but nothing that would lead them any closer to their ultimate goal, which mm -hmm. was to bring Lynn home. Yeah. And here's uh, some talk about some of the other searches. When we did our searches, you know, so many people showed up that we didn't know and family and friends. Like one point on one of the searches I was reading in my journal, we had up to 420 people. I remember specifically Lynn's best friend, one of her best friends, Leslie, she had come across some bones and we had a doctor with us that my sister had worked with so he'd be able to identify. And we were like, oh my God, this is it, this is it, oh, you know, you, you found her and blah, 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 but it ended up to be an animal of some sort. There have been other instances of false hope over the years that have taken a toll on the family and left them traumatized. Yeah, uh, yeah getting your hopes raised and then... Over and over. Trounced upon after, yeah. Yeah, oh. and here's Cheryl talking about a bit of that. And there were other bodies that turned up in North Vancouver. Yeah, there was uh, one at Kate's Park. And, yeah. and, uh, and that was close to your parents' place, right? Yeah, yeah, just down the road. And we drove there, and the police told us to go, that it wasn't Lynn. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of any other ones. Um, there was uh, another woman in Chilliwack, turned out. Oh, in, in the dishwasher? In a dishwasher. Oh, yes, yes. We were told about that, but thank God. I mean, I feel bad for that woman, but yeah, yeah she was in a dishwasher. Her body was stuffed in a dishwasher. So it was Something like this, he probably would have done, too. It's been this crazy roller coaster ride for you folks. Mm -hmm. Like It was the most awful, awful feeling knowing that she was up there somewhere, you know, and it really it bothers me now when I hear helicopters because I remember the helicopters flying above our home doing the infrared, um, mm -hmm. you know, scuba divers, before they were found, they were doing um, searches down in the water, down by the quay. Um, but every night I would hear a train, every night, and now to hear trains really freaks me out too. Because, because you associate the, it. I associate with, oh my God, men's out there all along and, and there's trains going and just, this would be about midnight, the same train every night and it just, yeah. But to, to get the calls like, oh, they found a body. Just recently they found somebody up Seymour Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I did di you... I didn't hear the... Well, a friend of my sister's phoned her, and then she phoned me. Did you hear they found... But it, well, obviously it wasn't Lynn, but yeah. So there's still the hope in her voice, even after all these years. I, I don't know how you ever... I don't think it's possible to, to you know, to... To completely move forward, no. you, you can just hear how like because you're held, you're held there by this one event. Yeah, the slight of the hearing helicopters makes you remember. Like there's, you can't escape these kind of things that no. will constantly, constantly trigger those feelings. And the fact that there's a hole in your life where a person used to be. Yeah, and constant remind. Oh, wow. So perhaps feeling the heat from well-publicized large searches, combined with the Duggins family's efforts to keep the case front and center, and especially the discovery of Lynn's skull, Brock Graham pulled up stakes and moved to Vancouver Island in 1995. Mm. Cheryl had some revelations about that time. Well, actually, I had heard that it was sort of um, an idea that the police, the RCMP, had set up that he'd be working at a, a car rental place and okay. there would be somebody there trying to befriend him and hopefully they could get... So doing the Mr. Big thing. Yeah. Or yeah, undercover it, operator. It, that's exactly it, yeah. Interesting. So, um, mm -hmm. Well, so he ended up in Campbell River. Yes. And he was living with his sister there for a time. Yeah. She introduced him to Patty Ducharme. Okay. Did you know that he'd moved in with Patty? 
Ducharme, did you? I think we had heard he had a girlfriend, hmm. but not that he was living with her or anything. Okay. Despite being warned by friends, Patty Ducharme moved Brock Graham into her home, with the three of her children still residing there. Brock had convinced her that the rumors were false and that the police were trying to frame him for Lynn Duggan's murder. Before Lynn Duggan's case could be resolved, there would be yet another murder. Yes, Patty Ducharme would lose her life too. Oh my God. And so this is where we will conclude this week's show. We will be back next week for part two and the conclusion of Murder Most Pointless, Lynn Duggan and Patty Ducharme. Not a cliffhanger, Mike. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Not sorry. (laughs) So catchy. Also, let's not leave leave our patrons hanging. We can't. can't. No, no, we can't. We can't cliffhang the, the Patreon. No, shout outs. no. We can cliffhang and their emotions. emotions. That's right. Just not their Patreon shout outs. Right. This episode has been uh, quite uh, a bit of a roller coaster ride for us, so I think we do need a little palate cleanser at the end of the end of this. Yeah, I mean, this is not this this episode, and likely the next are not ones where there's a lot for me to inject levity because I'm just captivated. captivated and yeah. so yeah, yeah. let's yeah. get some levity yeah. but you've yeah. you've done a good job at uh, at injecting, injecting where you can well it's well, I, I'm just like so I'm pulled into it yeah yeah it's pretty I'm pulled pretty. into it I'm like literally slack jaw yokel over here like compelling story it's a compelling story exactly yeah alright let's get to our Patreon patrons here Oh boy, there's a few of them. Oh goodness gracious. Lots of people for us to be thankful to. First up, oh oh, look at this. We have from Chilliwack, British Columbia. The whack. We have Cindy McDonald. Cindy. Thank you so much, Cindy. Thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, and we love your band, Chilliwack. Chilliwack. Gone, gone, gone. She been gone so long. She been gone, gone, gone so long. There you go. Or, uh, oh, there's a bunch of them. Chilliwack was amazing. Yeah. With Brian Too Loud McLeod as the guitar player. <laughs> was that his name? Yeah, and he went on to play with the headpins, but he's since oh, passed wow. away. Oh, no. Yeah. But Chilliwack, uh, interesting place. Smells funny when the fertilizer's out. Yeah, you know, I have mixed feelings about Chilliwack. Mm-hmm. Like, I hear not great things about it, but I like yet it. I go I like there. The I've gone there. There's a really nice uh, cafe there. Uh, yeah, there's nice uh, people there. Obviously, if people yeah. from Chilliwack are uh, becoming patrons. I have, I have good memories. Like, every time I've gone there, it's been a good event. They used to have, the Chilliwack Airport used to have the best pies. Yes. Didn't we go there one time? Was it you and I? I don't know. We may have. Yeah, I think we did when we were going to Hope or something like that. But it's gone now. Yeah. It's gone now, tragically. But it was was known as one of the best pie places. Very sad. Very tragic. Oh, wow. Kylie Ryan has upped her pledge. Whoa. Our Jade City person. Oh, Jade. Yeah, Jade City. What? What? Whoa, to... PM. Holy smokes. Yeah. She's a PM now. We bow to her and her Wow, le- and thank her you so much. Thank you, Kylie. Katie Haggerty from Crystal Beach, Ontario. Oh, that sounds like a lovely beach. Crystal Beach? Yeah. I'm still blown away that uh, Kylie has decided to up her, her pledge for us. That's kind of cool. It's pretty incredible. And she had just started uh, being yeah. a Patreon. That's really go. awesome. But so, so are you, Katie. It's Kylie. 
No, above. Above. Oh, Katie. Yeah. See, I went back one. You, you did. You did. And I confused I, everybody. We don't. We don't want to overlook Katie. No. And her contribution. For sure. From Crystal Beach, Ontario. Ontario. And we're going to get into a, a Davina Shaw. Yep. And is she like related to the Shah of Iran or? Yes. Oh. Yes. Oh, interesting. She's the Shah's mom. He was very old. Mama Shaw. This would make her in her hundreds. Yeah, well, like what? People in their hundreds can't enjoy true crime podcasts? I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> She's the Mama Shaw. Yeah. Well, I thought thought people in their hundreds lose their earring. Maybe that's a good thing in this case. Well, that's... In our, for our show. Uh, oh, I haven't told you I do a sign version of the show. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So that's probably how she watches. There you go. Yeah. It's pretty, I am pretty great, yeah. Um, Caro Burden from Sussex in oh. Great Britain. Oh, God, I, I need. I want to go to England. So do I. Yeah. And it's looking like maybe CrimeCon UK might be a thing in 2020. Oh, maybe. Jesus. Please let that be a thing. Yeah, depending on how well we're doing here. Yeah, yeah we'll see. I'll pip-pip-tally-ho my way out there. Exactly. Molly Duthie is from Vancouver, BC. No, is it Duthie or Duthie? Because I've heard variations. Well, Molly. it used to be called Duthie Books. Yeah. Remember Duthie Books? Yeah, I do. I do. I love Duthie yeah. Books. And it's spelled the same way. But there are I've heard it pronounced Duthie as well. So, well, if it's Duthie, that's good. Yeah. And if it's if it's Duthie, that's good too. It, they're both great. Yeah. I'm down I'm, Molly, I'm down with whatever. <laughs> now that you know what's at the old Duthie Books, it's like the London Drugs now. Remember that? Where was it? Uh corner of Georgia and uh and um Granville. Yeah, it's been it's been a London Drugs for a long time. It hasn't been uh, Duthie's. I used to love to go downstairs yeah. at the Duthie Books because that's where all the magazines were. They had the magazines, but also the true crime was downstairs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, I used to. Yeah, I used to go there every time I went downtown because yeah. they had a vast magazine selection. I could go look for my car audio. So maybe Molly is is the heir to the Duthie fortune. It's possible, or the Duthie fortune. It, 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 <laughs> It's it's possible. Could be. If so, cool. <laughs> Very cool. Carrie's Callum yep. from hmm, somewhere in the UK, I would think. Parts Unknown UK. Parts Did, Unknown? That's the actual name. So from the actual Middle Ages in the UK. It, it's, She's a time traveler. Uh, no, that's just the name of the city is Parts Unknown. Oh, okay. That's what they... Is, are there dashes between, like, parts dash unknown? Yes. Oh, because that's how they usually do it. Yeah. Yeah. Multi it's weird. That's how they do I it. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so it's the parts unknown mm -hmm. in the UK. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a lovely place, and it's very well known. Okay. So, you know, who'd have thunk it? And you know what she does? What? Jobs unknown. <laughs> that's a easy way out of this. You're welcome. Next up, we have Ryan Randawa from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Oh, that's so... we got a couple fairly close people here. Right on, Ryan. Yeah, I love Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Abby. That was like a hop, skip, and a jump away. Exactly. And I think who will might... who actually I might meet next week because you're not able to go to the uh, to the show or to the <laughs> meetup in Victoria. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, Taya Couture. Oh, any relation to Randy? I don't know if she is or not. You need to bring it up, Mike. She's from Victoria, so I can I can ask her. You need to bring it she up. She may give me cauliflower ears like <laughs> like Randy has. I don't you don't give them. You earn them. Right. Mike. From years years of years of wrestling. Well, it doesn't take years actually to get cauliflower ears. You can you can you can earn one with one well-placed smack well but it will go away to have permanent cauliflower ears yeah fair enough that's from a long time it's wrestling wrestling grapplings and last we have shauna schutbor like that was just so adorable and we don't know where she's from but shauna schutbor thailand she's from she doesn't I see her picture. She doesn't look like somebody who would be from Thailand. Oh, so people can't move to destinations? Well, you can move there. You can be an immigrant to Thailand. She's a Thailand immigrant. Okay. Yeah. And what does she do in Thailand? And it's not climb trees and change the beacons, because we already have a beacon. Yeah, yeah. And who updated her Facebook status to that. As beaconeer. Yeah. (laughs) It's incredible for her job. It's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, no. She's a... Uh, bagel slash strudel maker. Wow. I didn't know they did such a thing in Thailand. I, you know? Yeah, yeah no, it's the bagel hub of... Oh, that's the sort of Germanic-looking last name. Exactly. Look at yeah, you. Yeah. She's bringing her culture to the, the Thai people. She really is, and it's very appreciated, and Thailand is now the number one spot for strudels. People don't get this, but it's true. That is fantastic. It really is. It really is. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present. And future. And future for their support. <laughs> well, I don't know if we if we keep going the way we are, we may not have a future. Whoa, whoa. I'm kidding. Whoa. No, that like, was deep. We have, we have a good future. We have a great have future, us. right? If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or... For one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. So we did actually get some Interaki <laughs> transfers, though. <laughs> Speaking of those, mm. uh, from David Boyd, he said, some donut cash for use. Oh, thanks, David. Muchos gracias. From Tracy Don DuPont. Whoa. Of the she, DuPont family? The DuPont family. She said, hands down, my favorite podcast, keep up the fabulous work. Whoa. Well, hands down. Hands, thank you. Even. Even they, hands down. Or up. Uh, collateral damage was awesome. I had to throw you an extra few bucks. Oh. You two are a great team. It's her again, Tracy Dawn DuPont. Jeez, maybe she is with the DuPont family. Uh, wow. wow. Yeah, wow. Thank you. Holy, holy crow. That's really something. Speechless. <laughs> Not Me too. Really. Well, Not really. yeah. I'll still talk. And Olivia Graham says, for your rough day, Mike. Oh. Because I was having a rough day today. Oh, that's sweet. Much appreciated, Olivia. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's not my daughter, is it? Olivia? No, it's not. No, it's not that, Olivia. Because I'm not even my mom. Like, did she take my money? She probably did. Did she take my money and give it to Mike? <laughs> if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show you can easily find us on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. 
check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. How about them apples? Yeah, do all of those things immediately. Most, Most importantly, though, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week and part two, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.